being an entrepreneur is stressful, but you're having a ton of fun, right? You're meeting so many interesting people. And yeah, that I think, you know, when we look back at our lives and our careers, what I don't think it'll be just counting score of how many wins and losses. It'll be all those memories that we've generated. You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Callan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of That Worked. We have a great episode for you this week. I'm joined by Albert Wang. Albert is the co-founder and CEO of BearWorks. BearWorks is a revenue intelligence startup that supercharges sales teams to be more productive, leverage insights, and feel more connected. Albert was previously VP of product at Materialize and director of product at Datadog through their IPO. Prior to Datadog, Albert co-founded Persist, an on-demand virtual assistant service, was the first employee at Crunchyroll, the world's largest Asian video streaming service, and has worked at Dataminer and Yahoo. He's seen a ton of success. He's a Harvard Business School alum, and it was interesting to hear his takeaways from his time there. We dove into product development and how to conduct customer research. And the part I love the most was talking about what makes entrepreneurship great. It's a lot of work, and from time to time, I question why I do it, but I also can't imagine doing anything else. Albert gave his perspective on why he started a company, and I thought it was excellent. So with that, let's get to the show. Albert, welcome to the show. Thanks, Colin. It's super great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. Tell us a little bit about what is BearWorks and what are you guys doing? Yeah, so BearWorks is a modern data platform. Our goal is to enable business users to better answer their most questions and leverage their business data. The longer answer is that BearWorks is a low-code platform that enables go-to-market teams like sales, RevOps leaders to transform their complex data sets into practical insights for revenue growth without all the engineering headaches associated. Gotcha. So now, are you guys more on the sales side, the RevOps side, both? What does that look like? Good question. So we are focused on sales to start, but our big thesis is around RevOps that you know today's world is not as easy as it used to be. And sales is so complex that it actually transforms across boundaries. You have to go across sales and marketing, across sales and finance, across sales and product. And so RevOps is a big trend that we're super big believers in, that we're leveraging. And so we're targeting the RevOps users, but sales to start. Gotcha. What led you to found this company in particular? I'd say it's a culmination of my career. So going way back, I had a bit of consumer internet experience and then switched into enterprise software and product management. And... Enterprise is all about solving practical problems, about building a successful business and helping businesses be successful. But the consumer aspect is about building something that people want, something that you enjoy using. And you know, you think about what makes a company successful or not. You know, we're all drowning in data. It's you know, 2023, we're all using SaaS, but are we actually using it and leveraging it? So it's 
know, kind of one of the origin stories is I was a product leader at an enterprise SaaS company, and we were tracking the health of our top customers. And this was a lot of qualitative and quantitative data that was just aggregated in different spreadsheets. We'd have executive reviews. All the leaders across the company would get together every week. And this was just really manual, kind of very in the weeds discussion that, that would have to take place. And so why is it so you know, when it's your own data, why is it so stuck and, and siloed? It's kind of the origin story. Makes sense. I know that pain very well. And in the challenges, none of the systems have this out of the box. You either have to export everything into Excel and then build all of your functions in there, or you have to push everything to a BI platform and a CRO or a VP of sales, let me not generalize all of them. Let me put myself in that category. I'm not going to write a SQL statement in order to get all of this information and out of the BI tools. So is that a big challenge you guys are taking on? I think that is, it's a very hard challenge, but we're, we're hoping to tackle it bit by bit. Getting a data person, a data engineer who understands SQL really well, understands the nuances of joins and inner queries and, and moving windows, and also who is a sales leader, also a marketing leader. How many people out there in the world are you going to be able to hire? And so to that point, can you get someone in today's job market, right, that is a SQL data expert and also domain-specific expert is extremely difficult. And so we believe that the future of data is to be more decentralized. And sure, you're going to come out of college, you know, knowing the basics of programming, but are you going to be truly an expert? I think that's going to be a challenge for all of us. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So starting out your career at your first job on LinkedIn, you have as the description, top secret stuff, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Walk us through that one. So it was 2004, you graduate from college, really excited and wanting to change the difference. And you uh, end up at a defense contractor and you don't, you know, there's, there's doing all these really exciting things actually um, around data. I think I can talk about that now. It was, it was a bit of data work and data intelligence. <laughs> I guess I'll, I'll keep it, I'll stop it there. But I think what was great for me was learning the foundations, learning the fundamentals of, of engineering, right? You come out of school and you, you know, think you're ready to change the world. And the reality of data is not as clean, right? You have to get in the right format. You have to talk to your customers, understand what you're building. And the thing I learned from that first job was more about myself, I'd say. It was more about that kind of self-interest and intellectual curiosity. It is kind of difficult to share, share publicly because I still don't know what about our customer I can reveal. One of the things that I'm curious about, you mentioned that, is that what kind of led you into product? So you started out as a software engineer and then looking just kind of at your career, you moved into to product. Was that what led to that? The more of that kind of curiosity, trying to figure things out, road mapping and things like that? Or am I way off base on that? Okay, so great question. So after Yahoo, I moved over to Crunchyroll. I was the first full employee. And the company grew super rapidly. We were a bunch of engineers that all went to school together. I joined because the co-founders were serial entrepreneurs. 
And having that engineering background, you think you can build everything, you can solve things yourself. But the reality is business is so much more than that, right? It's how many big successful companies have we seen that are just technical technology innovations, right? There's, there's often the customer aspect, the sales and marketing aspect, product. So Callan, to your point, I think building the most technically interesting software is not as interesting as building something that people use, right? Why do people use it? And that was a big part of my shift to product. It was talking to customers to understand what really needs to get built, understanding how your product is differentiated from competitors. I think that is the most exciting and most stressful part of, of product, as I'm sure you know. It's literally business. It's continually fluid, constantly changing. And the variety is exciting, but it also keeps you up at night. <laughs> How do you navigate that? What is your kind of process for navigating that? So I'd say as a product person, my secret sauce is around understanding the market, but also just listening to customers. I think it's very common in enterprise software, just kind of being empathetic to the user, really listening, asking questions like you're doing now, and being curious, right? I think the interesting thing about enterprise software is it's so accretive. Going back to your, your previous questions about what we learned before, all those examples, all those past tasks, you know, whether an undergrad or your first job out of school, they add back up because these are real tasks that somebody hired and was willing to pay somebody to do, right? So it had to get done. And that is a challenge of product management because you have to do your requirements gathering, just talk to the user, collect that. But how do you convince your team that that's the most important thing that needs to be done? How do you get an engineer to internalize this problem and actually get excited about it? And rather than just hand them a spec and say, here's what the feature will do, because there's so much more to, to tech nowadays, right? About that user delight, I think is super hard. And, and so, yeah, like I said, the first thing is just really listening, getting a handle. I think going back to the consumer software consumer startup side, the other aspect is just around testing and iteration, right? Coming up with hypotheses, getting user feedback, right? It's going to be a bunch of hypotheses, but you're going to learn along the way. That's one big difference I've learned between enterprise and consumer. It's that in the consumer world, you're often just throwing spaghetti on the wall and seeing what sticks, right? Because consumer tastes are so fickle and they change very rapidly. When you think of customer research, customer interviews, and things like that, how do you conduct that? When you think of, do you have a set question set that you're going into that and you're kind of normalizing those questions? Is it focused on a particular area? What does that look like? Going back to the basics, I guess. First thing I started, there's a book by, it's called Don't Make Me Think. I think the author is something Krug. And he has a great set of user interview questions. I think one of the hardest things that you're you're hinting at is leading the witness, right? Like letting your subtle biases come out to your interviews. So as a result of that, I think setting context, understanding your persona, who is this user, right? Is this person 
kind of relevant to other enterprise software companies. Okay, fine. So what stage? Are they Series A, Series B, Series C? Is this person relative to a fintech? Is this person relative to pre-product market fit or post-product market? Is this person a senior or is this person a contributing member of decision-making process? The other aspect of the interview is kind of coming in with a few hypotheses that you want to test and really trying your best to ask the same flavor of the question across users. I think that I think is the fun part because you could easily become an automaton and just ask the same questions like a survey, but every single time with a user interview, that person is going to push your thinking a little bit and you want to incorporate that to your process really quickly. You know, I think that's the tricky part that separates experienced product managers from a kind of person kind of fresh because surveys are fantastic. Surveys have absolutely their place in user discovery, but they can also be a crutch. They can be the that kind of sheet of paper that you like show the engineers, oh yeah, the survey says that, you know, 70% of users agree with me. Well, okay, fine. But what is it that they didn't say? That's an interesting point. It's an interesting point in where if I'm hearing you correctly, it's the best can eliminate their own confirmation bias for the features and such that they want and take into what they're saying. But then also taking that anecdote, but diving deeper into it and to understand kind of the why and the root cause of what that is, where, I don't know, maybe it's something that is already on the roadmap. Maybe it's something totally different. Is that correct? Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I think that's a great one. It's what are you trying to achieve with your with your user review? Are you trying to validate your near-term roadmap? Are you trying to validate your product strategy? Are you trying to validate your theses around your competitors? There's so much that is going on when you're interviewing a person, right? And it's so easy to let that conversation go with the flow. But with each interview, you're really just trying to at least accomplish one key objective, but you're probably like have secondary or, or tertiary objectives as well, right? Like you mentioned, validating your kind of long-term product strategy, validating your long-term roadmap as well. The easiest thing to do that kind of gets everybody off track is to show somebody a mock-up, to show somebody a wireframe. But I'm sure you've seen this in your career where everyone has opinions once you start to see a product. Whereas when you're still talking about a concept, that's the fun part, but it's also dang- because your discussion can go in different directions, right? Like whatever you have, what you think this this product in your head could be completely different from what it's like in my head. And I think that's super exciting, right? Because you're kind of leveraging this creativity of two people. But the hard part of the interview is getting them to communicate it. <laughs> so you're on the same wavelength. It makes sense. And, we, and I've seen it quite a bit on the marketing and sales uh, customer interviews as well, when you're trying to understand the the pain points and, and things like that, or where are they getting information and trying to remove those biases is really tough. And that makes sense. Switching gears a little bit. So was it after Crunchyroll that you went to business school? That's right. Yeah. So at Crunchyroll, I started as a software engineer. I ended up running their ad sales team after a while and kind of learned the ropes of sales, learned the ropes of ads, and decided that I was having a ton of fun, wanted to switch into the business side, but there were a lot of questions. I guess 
I was whatever in my late twenties. You don't really know what you want to do with your career, right? And I actually had to apply to business school twice. So I applied the first time, didn't know a lot of MBAs, and learned a lot about myself in that process. When you get rejected and that process, you have to wait a whole year to reapply. You have to dig deep, right? Of like, what I have to go back and get more re- referrals, write a new set of essays. You're questioning yourself quite a bit there. But yeah, so decided to switch from one side of engineering to the other side of the business by way of business school. And like I mentioned, business school for me was about the people. So real quick, can we go back to that for the listeners that don't know that we're talking about Harvard Business School, which is really interesting because when somebody first hears that, it might be, okay, well, you didn't get into Harvard Business School. So that makes sense. But what's interesting is you did end up getting in. What did you need to do in order to make yourself competitive enough to get in that second time? That's a great question. I think I learned a lot about myself. Definitely. I learned a lot about what makes yourself different from other people. And you have to, whether you talk about the skills that you want to achieve, talk about the skills that make you different from other people, talk about the plan for your career path, right? I think any school today, a big challenge with education is that there's just so many people competing for so few spots. And For me, it wasn't about the standardized test. It was all about that essay and recommendation and making myself look different. I think that was a big moment of self-reflection for me. When you got to business school, what was it like for you? It was new for the listeners. I, I grew up in California. I spent my whole career until then in Northern and Southern California. So uh, the cold weather in Boston was new to me having to get, you know, down jacket. But I think the big reason for me personally, going back to your previous question, was about people, right? For me, it makes sense in retrospect, but how do you get the most as a team? How do you get a team to work together? And so that was a big aspect of what I was interested in in graduate school. It was about understanding businesses, what makes successful businesses different from the ones that are not as successful, what makes leaders successful. And one of the things I learned is, you know, you see a lot of these really successful business leaders and yeah, there's, they're really smart, they work really hard, but at the end of the day, we're all human. We all have our strengths and weaknesses. And HBS is, is pretty famous for relying exclusively on the case study. And for me, a big lesson I learned was if you and I were presented with a similar situation as, you know, this CEO, would you have done things any differently? And oftentimes the answer is, no, probably not. They made a pretty reasonable decision you would have taken it similarly. And so it gave me a lot more confidence, that confidence to realize, oh, you know, that world out there is not as scary and complex as people make it believe. I think the lesson for me later on was what they don't tell you about (laughs) in business school, right? How did they, the people aspect, how did you get people to perform? How did they think differently and uniquely? The role of the MBA today is a bit controversial, 
right? There's so many people coming out of even high school that say, oh, I don't need to go to college. I don't need to go to graduate school. And it's a great point, right? Does that education, is that ROI there when it's so expensive? But the principles that you learn from graduate school, that principles of leadership, of running a business, about being aligned organizationally, I think it definitely opened my eyes, I guess, as a kind of a naive little engineer <laughs> going in. To that point, how did that impact your kind of your first job as you got out of business school? There's a common quote I'm sure you've heard, which is, you have to be careful about hiring a Harvard MBA because they're going to come out of business school and think they could run your business better than you can because <laughs> you come out a little bit <laughs> egotistical <laughs> after seeing all these all these CEOs. You know, I think I got lucky, right? The tech scene was booming then. And so having that experience, but I really had to relearn the ropes from the ground up. I was new to enterprise software. And so you still have to go back to first principles, right? And you have to learn the basics, like we talked about. I had to learn, they don't teach you how to do a user interview in graduate school. They don't teach you how to do, I guess they do have a class on pricing, but they don't actually teach you how to do actual competitive differentiation, right? Because I think the great thing about startups and technologies, it moves so much faster than what happens in the classroom. Absolutely. Do you remember the first time you had that moment of, whoa, this was harder than I would expect? I, I mean, I got to assume you went into the first role with a good amount of confidence. But what was that first moment where it was, this is hard? I underestimated whatever this may be. I think it's a, very personal for me. The hardest thing is still scaling an organization. I think getting from a five person to a 50 person to a hundred person, there's a lot of complexities. You know, once you get to the 50 and hundred person organizations, you can, you have to start to think about OKRs, and organizational alignments, and making sure that our cross team objectives are good. I think when you're at the 10 to 20 person objective, you're thinking about your the territories of your teams and what are the key responsibilities and making sure that they're aligned amongst your, your contributors and thinking about career path and career development. That, I think, continues to be the area I'm working on and learning. Yeah, stage fit, stage development, the ability to grow at each different stage. And also, you know, I think it's also important that people look at it from the standpoint of, do I even like this stage, right? Just because the company's grown and you're in a higher position, you could be in a higher position, evolve, be good for that position and be miserable as kind of that company grows and scales. Yeah, I agree. I think today's being a manager is so much harder today because people come to jobs looking for a career. They're looking not just for the reputation and the compensation, but also who am I going to learn from? And what am I going to learn from you? And I think that kind of personalized coaching is not even just coaching. It's that, that player coach, that kind of well-being mentality, I think, is becoming more prevalent in the kind of new hires that I'm seeing. Yeah, I think what I've seen is a lot of the new hires, they want to have a big impact and they want to learn from somebody. And if those two things aren't there, they're going to go find it somewhere else. I've seen a lot of that. That's probably over the past five years, maybe even longer, though. Are you seeing something similar? Or you see something different? Oh, absolutely. It's wild. I mean, you know, the last 
few months, I've been interviewing a bunch of CROs. And I think that has, without a doubt, made the job of a leader so much harder because it's not only just are you a fit in terms of your day-to-day task, but how does my career path grow? And how does that fit with my particular skill sets? I think is actually a great topic that resonates with a lot of executives, actually. There's there's even a blog post from uh, General Catalyst about this, about the future of work. I think it's such a great topic, right? Because during COVID, when we were all sent to work from home, you know, one-on-one and conversations were all Zoom, nobody knew what was happening, right? With your, You'd see your touch points, but you wouldn't see what was going on. And, you know, some people would overwork themselves until three in the morning. Some people were, their talents were taken the most use of. And that kind of coaching was a big lack. And now that we're back to work, you know, back to the office, I think it's safe to say that we're not going to just return back to what it was like in 2019, right? The future of work has fundamentally changed with remote work and everything. I believe that. My personal belief is if if you can't create a remote environment, you're at a significant disadvantage. And I'm not saying, you know, don't have a hybrid environment or anything like that. I'm not a remote environment purist by any means, but you're putting yourself at a big disadvantage from a recruiting perspective if you will only take people locally. And in my opinion, it's not necessarily the obvious ones, right? Like when you think of, I may be able to get all the talent in the world in New York, but can my company at this stage afford all of the talent that's in, in New York that's out there where somebody may be willing that's in a, a smaller city, they don't have to make as much. They don't necessarily care if they make as much, but I also put that in and vice versa. That person may also can also live in Ohio, for example, and they're not taking anything less than New York or San Francisco money. Um, so everything has changed. And, if, and I think that the companies that don't adapt to that are at a significant disadvantage. One of our investors did a study on their portfolio, and they found that early stage businesses that leveraged distributed teams were actually found to grow faster and, and more rapidly because I'm, we don't know why, we're, we're guessing it's because of this plethora of talent. Right? I think it's such a fascinating topic, right? In terms of competitiveness of cities, competitiveness of Silicon Valley of the United States, right? Is there something different? And on the one hand, going back to school, what is the purpose of a university, right? It is to share knowledge and to meet people and exchange these ideas. And on the other hand, there's great talent everywhere. So how do you get people to work productively and creatively, yet also give them that freedom to not have to live in a high cost, high cost locale? Yeah, it's a difficult challenge. I mean, I think you have to have tight processes and you have to have things in place. You have to have things in place that bring people together, right? And that might be quarterly on sites and things like that, where you still can get some of that. But it's definitely a balance. And those numbers don't surprise me at all in an early stage company in particular, because a rock star person in an early stage company is going to have an outsized impact. That's purely anecdotal just from you know my experience, but I'm not surprised to hear that. You know, One of the things I'm curious about to that point in particular, I had read that you had turned down some other VP of product jobs in order to be the first product manager at Datadog. What led to that decision in particular? Just for this record, set it straight. I wasn't the first product manager. I was on a 
first cohort of product managers. So there, there were a couple of us. But yeah, so that was a that's an interesting discussion because at the time, Datadog was still a, a fast-growing but private company, and they weren't as well-known outside their space. And so I actually, like you said, had a bunch of other VP offers, and an investor actually told me to take a second look. And you know, they didn't share any anything confidential, but they were like, you should definitely take a look at Datadog. And once I joined, that's when I realized, well, they had been growing, basically doubling every 18 months for the previous three years. And so they was literally a definition of a rocket ship. And I've reflected back on that quite often because from the outside, there's no way I would have known. I was very, very lucky to have been guided there by my network, by an investor who was in the know, right? Because even though I had thought I had experience, right, running companies and looking at different businesses, investors are constantly out there understanding the market, understanding differences. So um, it's a very synergistic relationship for everybody, I think. Totally agree with that. I think investors are... They're great resources for not even just, I mean, definitely for making connections. And, and I'm a huge believer in networking to find your next. I, and now I'm biased. I've never, I have never gotten a job that I've applied for, not one time. Every single job I've ever had came from networking. And all the first clients I had for my business all came from my network and, and networking. So I'm definitely biased. But investors are one that I think are, um, I don't want to say underutilized. That's like a, making an investor a pure commodity. But the viewpoints that they kind of have both into what's going on within a company, what's going on within the market, right? So as you're kind of planning your next thing and you're thinking of, you know, do I want to join a later stage company? Do I want to join an early stage company? Getting an understanding of how the investors are thinking and what that investment landscape looks like, super important, right? If you think of all the people that joined you know, later stage company right now thinking that that was going to IPO in a few years. Now, I don't know if any investor could have predicted that anyway, but, you know, that's totally different. Yeah, I think that's a great point, right? The good question I've learned is to ask an investor for their recommendations of companies they aren't in or companies' deals that they missed, right? I think investors will give you, (laughs) going back to data, they'll give you great, they're going to be in a no for their own portfolio, but they're naturally going to be biased, right? And so on the other hand, investors, we shouldn't overgeneralize. Uh, investors aren't just one type of person, right? There's different flavors of investors and different types of people, right? It's, it's, at the end of the day, it's a relationship. And so, you know, some investors are very thesis driven. Some investors are very people oriented. Some investors are late stage. Some people are data investors. Oh, even data is too broad, right? Some people are finance data. Some people are marketing data investors. And so getting a sense of of that person, what they're interested in. I think going back to your point about networking connections, right? Investors are also, that's their their job is to to meet people, meet interesting people. And so that's been a huge lesson for me, you know, not just networking as a transactional aspect, but actually figuring out what type of person you click with and developing that relationship with over time. Because you know, oftentimes investors are thinking about businesses that they wish would exist. And so they're looking to incubate or trying to get a business started and make a team together. And there's just so many, as a middle of it's going to be an interesting conversation. You're going to learn about something new in some way or another from talking to investors. 
I completely agree with that. So a question that's on my mind is had a really successful run at Datadog. You were there. It went public. After that, it looked like you joined an early stage uh, company with Materialize, which also seemed to be a company that was growing pretty quickly. Why found a company? Why go through and, and start that company from scratch? Because you could have easily went to, I have to assume, now I'm assuming, I'd, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but just having that Datadog exit and IPO, a successful IPO, $24 billion market cap as of, I think, today, you probably could go most anywhere you want and negotiate a great comp package, equity plan, everything else. Why found a company? That was a lot of deep late night conversations with with my wife. Materialize and Datadog, both fantastic companies, amazing people, learning so much. And for me, I think part of it is just around that itch, around wanting to push myself to see what you're capable of. Part of that is about thinking about the problem space for so long and just really getting excited about the domain, right? It's kind of what pushed me over the edge personally was we're currently working in the data space. And like many large spaces out there, it's just so deep and so broad. I know that I'm motivated by A, building something that people use, but B, that kind of intellectual curiosity, right? There's so many interesting problems and challenges that even if we solve one, there's going to be at least 10 more behind that door. What I'd say, as I'm sure you know, Cal, right? Being an entrepreneur is stressful, but you're having a ton of fun, right? You're meeting so many interesting people. And yeah. that, I think, you know, when we look back at our lives and our careers, what I don't think it'll be just counting score of how many wins and losses. It'll be all those memories that we've generated. And you know, I guess I'm only at the beginning of it, right? Where many people have joked we're in the honeymoon phase still. So, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm still able to uh, smile and laugh about what I'm going through. But it is one of those things where you almost have to keep that that mindset, and any, and that not even just founding or starting a company, but if you're going to be an executive in an early stage company, you have to have that release, you have to be able to kind of laugh at a, at a certain situation. Now, you can't just, you know, have a bad situation and laugh in front of your whole team, right? That's totally different. But you have to have something because you're on the razor's edge at all times. That's something I think was probably the biggest thing I realized in, in being an executive at an early stage startup was that, you know, the full burn, you know, everything that's going on. And when you first, I think, look at that, it's like, whoa, these are risky. These are really really risky. And I had to really prioritize a lot of things kind of outside of work in order to make sure that I could handle the stress that comes with it. Well, how do you do that? Well, how do you manage that that stress just in general? My wife and I, we have, we're both doing a startup and we have two young kids. So I think- Oh, okay. So you have got the full picture right now. We've got our heads full. Yeah. So we've got our natural stress release. It's just the rest of our life. Um, but I think I think you make a great point, right? That's what I think product management is so similar to entrepreneurialism and doing a startup because you know we have what we learned in the past. We have our skill sets of what we're good at. But what keeps me up at night is what am I missing? What are my blind spots? What am I forgetting? And not only that, it's about what do we feel? What do I feel good about 
double down, like going double down, kind of investigating and investing in further and pushing the gas on. I think you spoke to Vikas, right? And, and he, he mentioned he's an advisor. You know, he said being a CEO is all about capital allocation, right? Whether it's about money or time or resources, mindshare, that's fundamentally the job uh, that we have to do. It's a hundred percent, and it's no different than in a you know than an executive in a large organization as well. Larger, not even doesn't have to be a large organization, but if you could have a conversation with your younger self, age up to you, what would that conversation be? What advice would you give? I've been thinking about this one. So, I think there's a quote actually. My my the beginning of business school, uh, and a professor. His name is Rawi Abdul. He's uh, actually a international relationships professor, but it's a quote from NASCAR, and his quote is basically goes to the effect of, um, you're not racing if you're not crashing, right? And I think that's a great one for me. I think MBAs kind of by definition are a little bit risk averse. They're actually not often the most risk-seeking people. But the gist of that quote is you should know what that razor's edge is. You should feel, know where, you're, where that boundary is and kind of constantly push yourself to get there. I think that has been a big lesson to about myself, learning myself and kind of pushing my boundaries. I didn't expect a NASCAR quote to be the one that actually put a lot of what I've been thinking into perspective as well, but it totally nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> I had to find the exact quote. I, I totally butchered it, I'm sure. It is. It's that pushing to make mistakes yes. and because you're going to learn from those those mistakes albert this has been great i think you gave so much good advice today i appreciate you coming on the show i had a ton of fun it's been, thank you for having me. absolutely i hope you enjoyed albert and i's conversation to me one of the best parts of being an entrepreneur is all the interesting people that you meet i didn't expect that when i started but it's by far one of my favorite parts of the job. If you want to learn more about Albert, you could find him on LinkedIn in the show notes. Also, if you like this episode, you could find me on LinkedIn to let me know. And if you really want to support the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is very much appreciated. Thanks for listening, and I'll see everybody next week.